Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 2, 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free from, to eat from the trees in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. John 10, 10, 11. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is the gospel of the Lord. Well, it's always a good challenge when you're uh, given the theme of in this case, wild gospel. It makes you think about things perhaps in a, in a different way, uh, which, is, uh, which is good. So, Psalm 19 begins with these words. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Do you ever contemplate the universe? Contemplate creation? And kind of think to yourself, that's wild. It's wild. I, I recently read an article from the BBC which said this. It said the natural world contains about 8.7 million species, according to a new estimate described by scientists as the most accurate ever. But the vast majority of them have not been identified, and cataloging them all could take more than a 1,000 years. That's pretty wild, isn't it? Right now, we're standing on a huge rock spinning on its axis at about 1,000 miles per hour. That's 1,600 kilometers per hour. Whilst at the same time, hurtling through space, orbiting the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. That's pretty wild, isn't it? Scientists estimate that there are more stars in the universe then there are grains of sand on all of Earth's beaches. That's pretty wild. God's creation is beautiful and orderly, but it's also wildly exciting, vast and surprising. When we contemplate the created universe, we kind of have to reach the conclusion that there is something wild unpredictable and untamable uh, in the character of the one who created it. But we're not altogether comfortable with that. So in our minds, we attempt to tame God. We try to reduce him to something more manageable. In C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, there's this part where the children become aware of uh, Aslan, the lion, who is, of course, representative of Jesus. 
And two of the children, Susan and Lucy, they want to know if Aslan is safe. And Mr. Beaver replies like this. He says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So we see a wildness in God's creation, which points to a wild, unpredictable aspect of God's character. In our first first reading from Genesis, and by the way, the first part, Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, are ancient Hebrew poems that point to the who and the why of creation. In other words, who created and why did they create? Science explores the questions when and how. The Bible isn't really interested in those questions. So there's no conflict between science and Christianity properly understood. It's just that they're answering very different questions. So in Genesis 1, we see that human beings are meant to represent God in the world. We have been charged with caring for God's good creation on his behalf. Hence, we're meant to subdue the earth and rule over it. Not rule like a despot, but rule in the loving, caring way that God would rule. In Genesis 2, we see that God placed human beings in a garden. The Garden of Eden represents a place of peace, tranquility, and safety. The question is, were human beings meant to remain in the garden, or were they meant to go out from there, out into the whole world to subdue it and rule over it? Well, I think the latter is implied, but we don't get that far because there's a twist in the storyline. Adam and Eve rebel against God. Sin and death enter into God's good creation. And our first parents are thrown out of the garden. Since that time, human beings have, metaphorically speaking, been trying to get back to the garden, trying to achieve greater levels of comfort, ease, and safety, And we see that more than ever in the modern world, particularly in the Western world. We have become obsessed with our safety and well-being and longevity. But please don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with looking after the safety and well-being of ourselves and others. It is a good thing that people don't generally lose fingers and toes and eyes and limbs in the workplace. Thanks to modern medicine, we can now have a higher quality of life for longer. That's wonderful, and it's a huge privilege. Nothing wrong with looking after our safety and well-being. But often in the modern world, we want to protect ourselves and particularly our children from every conceivable danger. In the interest of safety, we prevent children from doing things that are essential for their development and they're confident. And we live our lives as if we fully expect to live forever. If you follow this diet, do this exercise program, apply this moisturizer, take these supplements, follow this sleep pattern, you'll stay fit and healthy forever. Age is just a number. You heard that? Age is just a number. It's not true. It might be good to do all those things I mentioned, but at some point, they're going to stop working. If we're blessed enough to reach old age, our bodies will deteriorate and eventually will die. Death 
is almost like a taboo subject in our culture. Don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. And we try to convince ourselves that we'll live forever. We want to get back to the Garden of Eden where life was comfortable and death wasn't even a thing. But in the garden, human beings lived in close communion with God. Our culture wants to get back to the garden without God. Many people in Australia have some kind of belief in God. Often people tell me that they're atheists, and when I start to to talk to them about it, it transpires that really they're agnostic. They believe in something, they're just not quite sure what it is they believe in. And when people think about God, given their expectations of comfort, ease, good health and long life, they often imagine that God's primary purpose and goal is to provide us with those things. Comfort, ease, good health and long life. In other words, we imagine that God's primary goal is to make us happy. Now, that might be God's ultimate goal, but it's not his primary goal right here and now. Here's the thing. We're not God's pets. And this world is not like some kind of terrarium. And God's main job is not to feed us and keep us warm and dry and comfortable. God's primary goal for this world right now is to bring as many people as possible into a loving relationship with himself that lasts forever. In many ways, the world we live in is a scary and volatile and dangerous place. It's wild. Of course, we can experience tremendous joy and satisfaction and fulfillment, but we can also experience excruciating pain, physically, mentally, emotionally. But if God's primary goal is to bring as many people as possible into a loving relationship with himself, then we must conclude that this world is the best possible environment in which to do that. Human beings are fallen, sinful, and broken. Humanity is in rebellion against God. How should we know what environment is most conducive to bringing such complicated beings as ourselves back to God of our own volition? How should we know? This world is wild. And there is something about God's character that is wild and untamable, evidenced by the way that God gives us the opportunity to come back into a right relationship with him. The very idea of God himself being nailed to a cross is a really wild concept. It's a good job that God is not obsessed with his safety and his well-being. If he were, he would never have entered this world as a vulnerable baby, destined to suffer an agonizing death on a cross. On the cross, God took our sin upon himself. He took it down to the grave and he left it there. Then he rose to everlasting life so that those who put their hope and their trust in him will receive the free gifts of forgiveness and eternal life. That is beyond wild. 
What kind of God does that? What kind of God does that? A God who loves us beyond measure, who will stop at nothing to save us from sin and death. So this world is wild. God's plan to redeem and restore the whole of creation, including us, is wild. The gospel is wild. But we shouldn't view this world as, as like a harsh, unpleasant environment. And we shouldn't view life as something that must be endured so that we can win the prize in the end. Jesus said, I come that they may have life and have it to the full. This does, of course, mean eternal life, but it's not like we get two lives, this life and the next. We have one life that begins now and stretches into eternity. We are to enjoy this wild world, and we are to enjoy living in the light of this wild gospel. When I was a child, uh, maybe 10 or 12, I was greatly influenced by a poem. Um, It's a person writing uh, towards the end of their life. Um, The the poet is unknown. Um, There's many ways that we could critique uh, this poem. I'm not offering it as a philosophy, but it had an impact on me. You'll you'll, you'll understand why in in a moment. But let me tell you what this poem says. It goes, if I had my life to live over, I'd dare to make more mistakes next time. I'd relax, I would limber up, I'd be sillier than I have been this trip. I would take fewer things seriously. I would take more chances, I would take more trips. I would climb more mountains and swim more rivers. I would eat more ice cream and less beans. I'd perhaps have more actual troubles, but I'd have fewer imaginary ones. You see, I'm one of these people who live sensibly and sanely hour after hour, day after day. I've had my moments, and if I had to do it over again, I'd have more of them. In fact, I'd try to have nothing else, just moments, one after another, instead of living so many years ahead of each day. I've been one of those people who never go anywhere without a thermometer, a hot water bottle, a raincoat, and a parachute. If I had my life to live over, I would start barefoot earlier in the spring, and I'd stay that way later in the fall. If I had to do it again, I would travel lighter next time. I would go to more dances, I would ride more merry-go-rounds, I would pick more daisies. Now, this poem inspired me as a child to live a life of adventure. I thought, I don't want to get to the end of my life and have those sort of regrets. Uh, To be fair, I don't think I picked an excessive amount of daisies, uh, but I've climbed uh, a lot of mountains and swum rivers and had a career in the Royal Marines, jumping in and out of uh, fast boats and helicopters and traveling around the world and doing exciting stuff. But it wasn't until I was 28 that I discovered the real adventure starts when you give your life to Christ. That's when it really starts. So I think that poem is missing something. I think right at the top, it should say, I'd walk closer with Christ. I'd never leave his side. I'd ask the Holy Spirit to guide me daily. I'd proclaim the gospel and love people more completely. I'd live with purpose. That's what it should say. Walking with Christ, I mean really walking with Christ, means swapping the mundane for the wild. It means taking risks. Think of the Apostle Paul's testimony. What would he have done without Christ? Probably stayed at home and lectured people about the law. 
Instead, he traveled all over the known world, proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, building churches, and seeing God's power in action. How exciting is that? The uh, Catholic theologian G.K. Chesterton wrote this, and again, I wouldn't build any doctrine around this, but uh, he said, a characteristic of the great saints is their power of levity. Angels can fly because they can take themselves lightly. One settles down into a sort of selfish seriousness, but one has to rise to a happy self-forgetfulness. A man falls into a brown study. He reaches up at a blue sky. I want to encourage you today. Exchange the mundane for the wild. Recognize God's call on your life. God uses ordinary people like you and me to be, to do incredible things, to build his kingdom. We're not going backwards to the Garden of Eden. We're going forwards to a renewed and restored creation in and through and with Jesus. Life will not always be comfortable and pleasant, but there is no greater joy or fulfillment than embarking on this wild adventure with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that often we're too willing to accept the mundane and the ordinary when you want to use us to do extraordinary things, to speak life and truth into people's lives, to see people and families and situations transformed, to see people's lives completely turned around by the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that uh, tonight you'll ignite something in our hearts that will want us to follow you whole, make us want to follow you wholeheartedly to do whatever it is that you ask of us, no matter how difficult or risky or challenging. Help us, Father, to be willing to get out of our comfort zones, to live life to the full, and to live our lives for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.